Hey, welcome to another exciting edition of the Give Me Liberty podcast. I'm super excited to sit down with Megan Basham to talk about her upcoming new book, the author of Bad Shepherds. Megan Basham joins the Give Me Liberty podcast starting now. Welcome back to the Give Me Liberty podcast. I'm joined by special guest, my friend, Megan Basham. Welcome back. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to fall and I'm glad to be here, Ryan. It's been a while. It has been a while. So you have been busy. You're over at the Daily Wire, cultural writer, writing a lot of things that are going on in entertainment. Uh, But you have become a very credible conservative source on a number of issues pertaining to evangelicalism, Mm. evangelical world divided, especially over the issue of wokeism. And when we say that, it's like a catch-all. Like it's wokeism, (laughs) you know, you're doing critical theory, uh, critical consciousness, uh, kind of the Me Too-isms that have spilt over, uh, as well as sort of the, the, I don't know, pro-regime statist, uh, trust your local healthcare provider and <laughs> take as many jabs as possible and wear a darn mask. You've been doing all of that in terms of covering that um, and sounding the alarm. I'm really appreciative of that. And that's why we had you on. You just wrote a book yeah. and I, I know that uh, it's forthcoming, but I wanted to, to kind of talk about that. Why is it so critical? I guess the first question that evangelicals wake up to sort of the problems, not only within, I wouldn't say it's like every local church, it's not that. I think the issue right now is the platforms. I think the issue is questioning right now those that have been platformed, I would say over the past 10 years, some have remained faithful, others have kind of fallen into this uh, regress, if you will, and they're chasing the sort of the, I don't know, the accolades or the approval of mainstream media. They want to be the point person to go on NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday morning and really speak for the evangelical world without actually being connected, I think, to the average person sitting in the pew on Sunday morning. Yeah, and that was really why um, I wrote this book. It's uh, we're still deciding if it's coming out as Regnery or it's it's coming out as Salem because of course Salem owns Regnery. Um, but you know, it kind of lives in that space where it feels a little political, and it also feels like it is very much about the church, about faith, about evangelicalism. So, um, and hopefully, I'll have pre-orders ready to announce soon. <laughs> but um, so it's called Bad Shepherds. And the reason I wrote it was because I did notice what you were talking about, um, that there is very much a divide between what is happening with what you might call the elite regime class and what is happening with evangelicals who are just ordinary people in the pews. And there has been a very strong divide in what they want to see happen in the church and how they want to see themselves represented um, nationally and internationally even. I mean, this is a very big scope. And so what I found um, is that everybody sort of knows that there is a divide. What people have been asking me is, why? Why is this happening? And um, just kind of a funny story. I have a friend who he and his family had moved some years ago to California, and they were attending you know, a broadly evangelical. It was non-denominational, this particular church. 
Um, but it was known to be solid. Um, they're not particularly political people, but they wanted to know, okay, we want a church that, you know, understands the sanctity of human life, that understands what um, the Lord requires from us in terms of marriage and sexuality and our sexual ethics. And so they did a home, they did their homework to go, okay, they're sound on that. And then they yeah. get in this church and they see agitating for Black Lives Matters. They have women in the women's ministry asking this wife, hey, we're gonna go on the women's march, do you wanna wear this pink hat? And I'm not gonna say, but for those who know what that pink hat represents, this woman didn't know. And she started looking it up and went, oh my, how are people at church asking me to put this thing on my head and go march for something that in so many ways is antithetical to biblical values? So they thought it's California, California's nuts, right? I guess this is just what happens. And then they moved back to Georgia and they went to a Presbyterian church. They're Baptists by conviction, but they're just looking for sound doctrine and figured, okay, we can, you know, we'll be okay with this secondary issue. And at this church too, within a few weeks, they start a series on justice and they are asked to get up publicly, all the white people in the congregation and stand and applaud to show their repentance for systemic racism. And this couple are going, this is Georgia. This is the Bible Belt. We're, we don't feel systemically racist. Mm -hmm. um, they disagreed with much of that. And there was, and, and, and in the interim, they had gone back to the uh, non-denominational church that they had left before they moved to California and they found compromise on sexuality. So suddenly they felt like, where do we go to get right. sound teaching that is not infected by these fashionable social issues that are being pushed by the culturally powerful. Yeah. And that was really the issue was that they felt like this is coming from everywhere. And that's the thing that I think we all know is happening. So what I started looking at is why is this coming from everywhere? Um, why mm -hmm. does it seem like the values of um, some Southern Baptist leadership, let's say, seems to align perfectly with the values of um, Apple or Nike, or you're like, this is just a very curious thing. Um, so part of what I wanted to do was say, yeah, we know it's happening, but let's do a journalistic look at it. And um, I feel like there's probably a lot that's gonna alarm people. And that is because yes, your pulpits, your ministry platforms are being co-opted by the left. Um, you might even see they're being bought. A lot of money is coming in from leftist billionaires, names you know, like George Soros, names you might not know, like Pierre Omidar, who launched eBay back in 1995. Yeah. So these are the people who are investing a lot of money to see large ministries move in that direction to take up the issues of climate change, immigrate, you know, open borders, immigration, um, issues like uh, becoming, they would say more inclusive, but yeah. what they're really looking for is LGBT affirmation. So right. all of these things are happening, and that is what I really wanted to sound an alarm and let people know that you are not imagining this. This problem is real. Here's why it's happening. You know what's really interesting is – by the way, that's brilliant, and thank you for setting that up. Um, what's really interesting, you know, I would say since the advent of social media – and the smartphone and all of these various apps. I was one of the first, um, I went to the University of Texas at Austin. I remember the day we got the Facebook, you know, and 
I signing up for it and I was like, this is interesting. It was pretty boring now, like compared to what the, you know, they have now it's very interactive. There's apps and videos and all kinds of things, but then it was just posting your picture and, you know, telling people what you had for lunch, you know, that kind of thing. Um, when you look at the advent of the inter of, of social media in particular, you no longer have these sort of regional things where, you know, you were to mention the Bible belt, you know, the Bible belt, um, you know, you're, you're thinking of regional states in the Southeast, you know, uh, maybe from, from the parts of East Texas, all the way to Florida, maybe up to Georgia, Virginia, maybe as far North as that, maybe as far North as Kentucky Bible belt, right? Maybe even Missouri. And it's a regional location. And there's, there's a commonality, there's a cultural thing there. There's, it's economic, it's socioeconomic, and and then even the values and all of that. But the digital world has changed things. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that during COVID, I saw a lot of woke preachers, not just in California, but I saw them in the Bible Belt. Right. I saw woke preachers saying some similar things. And it's like, wait a second, this is not tied to kind of a regional, traditional sort of value set or what you would think culturally instead it's very very different it's an it's like these affinity groups that have grown out of the digital revolution that that now have been placed squarely on the phone and people now have these these commonalities they've been brought together because they might identify with I like what this person says here. You know, I follow this person on Twitter or I follow this person's Instagram account. And that becomes a way in which identities are kind of formed. And I've been seeing this more recently. And, and you know, um, COVID kind of brought that out. It, you know, um, I remember one of my first interviews uh, in, in 2020, right after two weeks to slow the spread, uh, was actually Doug Wilson. And, you know, he mentioned how, you know, there was the great civil war of the 1860s and that was all regional and it was, it was political. Yes. And it was also economic. But what's interesting about this new division that we're finding is that you could look at a map across the country and you can look at very red areas in California and you can find blue areas in Texas that are really, really blue. It's really having to do with. Um, cities now and suburbs, the cities and the suburbs and then the rural regions, it seems like this woke um, thing within the evangelical world, Megan, is not so much an urban thing or a rural thing, but a suburban thing in these kind of purple areas where people have affluence and wealth, but they also have to placate some kind of a conscience that is not informed by biblical truth. It has more to do with these luxury beliefs uh, that they're almost trying to, in some way, um, between avocado toast and Pilates, <laughs> they've and, and and their six dollar coffee. They've got to also yes, and we need to do something ab about wokeism. We just need to do that to show that we're sensitive about these issues and signal as much. Yeah, I think there is a prestige issue here, and as you said, you know it's. A geographical divide, but I also think it's something of a class divide. Um, we just, I, I, 
last week, there was new research out showing that, okay, all of these stories on the great de-churching have assumed that it is, you know, young urban professionals leaving the church or people, you know, kids who go off to college, they become secularized, they leave the church. It turns out that's not what's driving the dwindling numbers of people going to church. It is actually blue collar people, people in the suburbs, people in the working class who tend to be more conservative who are leaving churches. And, um, you know, we can speculate here. I haven't looked at really closely at this research, but the indication is they don't feel that um, they are being heard, that they are being represented. They don't feel that they're being respected. And I think they're right. I mean, look, we have seen for certainly the last 20 years, a, you might call it the Tim Kellerist model of pursuing um, the, the, I'm going to say fashionable, pursuing the fashionable, pursuing the culturally desirable people who are young, educated, wealthy, who live in these urban areas. And as we've done that, we have sent a very clear message that, hey, if you're blue collar, working class Appalachia, we're not real interested in you because you don't really come with any cultural cachet. So I do think that that is something that we're seeing. And, you know, just recently I saw a really great definition of populism because I think we can talk a little bit about what's happening here as a populist um, rejection of what the leadership in the church is trying to push. And this definition was that populism itself is not an ideology. You can't point to something and say, this is a populist idea. Populism is a question that you attach to a certain, whether it's conservative or liberal. It's saying, should the movement of um, a group should should the movement be framed by the leaders at the top, the elites at the top, and they're deciding which direction the movement goes, or is it coming from the bottom up? So populism suggests it is coming from the bottom up, that you should be serving the needs of the people at the bottom and hearing those voices. Um, so that is what I think we're seeing in this question that you're asking me, okay, why is this divide happening? Is it just geographical? Is it suburban, rural? I mean, the answer is yes, it is. But the reason you may feel like you can't get away from it is because it is really a question of class divide. And yes, let's say you have your suburban pastor who has a church of three to 5,000. The people around him may not be really buying into a lot of this wokeism, but the things that he's reading, the uh, he you know he probably wants to publish at Christianity Today and the Gospel Coalition, and he wants to be invited onto these podcasts. And maybe I mean, if he's lucky, he might even see his name mentioned favorably in the Washington Post or USA Today. So what you see is that guy is being shaped more by these cultural these evangelical cultural institutions than he is being shaped by just you know his local congregation his own church members that he's supposed to be shepherding and so he gets his in some cases i would say very deliberately in some cases i think it's just sort of a you know subconscious osmosis these are the acceptable things to say this is the respectable discourse you saw it i mean in stark relief during covid where basically these pastors went, I don't know, should I close my church? Should I not close my church? They go on to TGC and what they see is to to love your neighbors, you better close that church. So a lot of people, a lot of pastors, understandably, you know, maybe they're looking for insight and they're looking for guidance. So they did that. They went, oh gosh, you know, well, we better close our church. You know, that's what it means to love your neighbor. 
And so I think that is part of why you saw the divide. Not everybody, you know, is consciously capitulating. I don't think that's right. the case. But the elite, in a lot of ways, is pushing a very specific agenda for a very specific reason. And COVID was such a clear example of it because later the lies that were told by the federal government that these evangelical institutions pushed were so clear. I mean, you look at Francis Collins, Anthony Fauci, I yes. mean, they were caught, 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 caught. We know now yeah. that they knew that it, you know, likely leaked out of a lab in Wuhan as they were going, as Francis Collins was going on evangelical platforms saying, no, 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 Mother Nature made this, and you need to tell your parishioners and your congregants that if they're saying that it, it might have come out of a lab or it might have been engineered in China, that's conspiracy theory. So you need to write essays in the Gospel Coalition. You need to slip that into your message that, no, 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 we are Christians, and it is bad for our witness to be indulging this kind of um, conspiracy theory mongering. So that's why you saw it all go out. And I think now— there has been massive damage to the credibility of uh, yes. the leadership class. And I, I I don't know how how that plays out from here, but I don't think you're going to put the genie back in the bottle and that that level of respect is going to return very quickly. Since 1971, Liberty University has had one mission, training champions for Christ. We've been at this for a while. And in the shadow of the Blue Ridge Mountains, we have grown to be a global force. Today, Liberty runs over 100,000 students around the globe, studying across 15 colleges and schools. And among them, over 30,000 military students. Across 700 programs of study, we train as one. Nurses, artists, business leaders of the future and today. Together, we work to give back through service trips, local community work, and over 500,000 volunteer hours per year. And we play just as hard as we study with 20 NCAA athletic programs and 40 club sports teams. So who are we? We are Liberty University and we train champions for Christ. Yeah, going back to, so well said, going back to something you talked about with populism. You know, this is something that, you know, through throughout history, there have been various populist movements, uh, you know, from sort of grassroots moving up. Um, you look at the the glorious revolution of 1688. There was the, the Civil War um, that in many ways, you know, the, the English Bill of Rights and common law that formed out of that influenced the American Revolution. But the, the 1740s and the 17, 1730s, 40s and 50s in the United States or the, the American colonies, um, you know, precursor to the American Revolution. That was a populist movement as well. It's called the First Great Awakening. These were not elites, uh, representatives who were appointed, you know, to to travel to a great distance by horse and buggy to Philadelphia, gather together, uh, you know, vote on these various resolutions and say, I think we're going to have a a revival, you know? Right. No, I mean, this was the preaching of the word of God by many no-name people. The people that we remember, of course, are like Jonathan Edwards and the, the Wesley brothers, John and Charles, or George Whitfield, who was a giant who probably something like three out of four colonists actually heard him preach in person at least once in their lifetime. 
That was a populist movement. That was a good one. I think we could all agree. Right. There, there can be principles and populism. You, though, fast forward, you go to the French Revolution. That was another populist movement, one that was not steeped in principles, that was steeped in humanism and naturalism. And uh, Lafayette, who fought in the American Revolution, also fought in that one. And, 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 and yet they, they, they could not be any more different uh, than what we see in the United States. Also, the Russian Revolution the Maoist revolution, populist movements. But what's interesting is all throughout scripture, there was never, the, the, the thing that Jesus in the New Testament decried, um, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and this, even the scribes for, they were elites uh, and they were not fulfilling God's law. And they also hated God's people. And that was right. the irony of the whole thing. You know, he goes to the Sermon on the Mount and, and he's feeding a multitude. And then he's also preaching the word of God. You've heard it said, and then I say unto you, um, that is a populist moment. And so God condescends. There are moments in history where God reaches down and he is reaching to the common person, the common man, the common woman, the common child. And that is gospel ministry. And when elites do it, I think that oftentimes they are perpetuating something else, whether it be a platform, whether it be prestige, whether it be personal power or privilege, but they're not re they don't actually have the people uh, people's best interest in mind. And so ironically enough, um, the 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 movements that I mentioned like the, the French Revolution, the, the Maoist, uh, the, the communists, they pretended to have the people's interest in mind and it actually led to you know imperialism. It, 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 it led to tyranny. It led to, you know, um, a, a, a new regime that had absolute power and people had none of it. In the case of the Glorious Revolution, in the French Revolution, it was a populist movement steeped in principle where all of a sudden you brought the elites a whole lot lower and the people a whole lot higher. And you had true, true examples of actual freedom and equality in those movements. And yet, so here, what's the reason I'm bringing it all back? Bringing it all back home is that it seems like there is a great, there is a greater disparity now, uh, probably than ever before, where the people in the pew who are actually, I, I would say, in many ways, in charge, um, they there there seems to be because of the digital public square, because of you know the way today information is disseminated, the way um, platforms are so carefully curated and safeguarded that there's there's only a few people that are allowed access to that platform and they have to be approved. And they seem to have all of the uh, ability to sort of crowd out everyone else. So the people in the pew, while they're dissatisfied, they're not having a voice or a platform to go up. The very few Anthony... Oliver Anthony's. Right, right. <laughs> right. And so it seems as though that's what's taking the space. Anyway, I, this is all by observation. I agree with you. Populism matters. It's really important. Yeah. And I think, I mean, look, we don't want to suggest like we don't have leaders. You need leadership. People need to be in leadership positions. You you need an elite, in fact. The question is, who are they serving and who, who has their ear? So I think that's the issue is I don't want to suggest, hey, we're not going to have leaders right. and down with all the leaders. That's not the issue. But I do think the issue is that we have to look at the record now, certainly of the last, um, let's say, three years since 2020 and the pandemic and how they handled that. But I think you can go back further and say, OK, 
How has this leadership handled pressures from, let's say, nefarious actors from the outside? Do they do they want to entertain um, that, hey, we'll give a grant to your ministry, a big grant? Or are they like, no, we are going to stay focused on our mission and what the gospel um, teaches, what we want to, how we want to win people, or are we going to get distracted with things like, hey, let's start a creation care um, ministry for our teens instead of saying, these are the basics of the Bible. These yeah. are, um, the, this is what we want you to be pursuing, the, the righteousness we want you to be pursuing in your personal lives. This is how, you know, we want you to go out and impact the world. Instead, they're saying, hey, listen, creation care is a gospel issue. Okay. <laughs> I mean, stewardship, yes, but that is why that, you know, that's one of those issues you bring up because you go, gosh, whether we should, um, drill more or have cap and trade legislation, that is not a gospel issue. I mean, right. Christians of really good faith can have you know disagreement on that subject, but these are the type of issues that are being pushed as that. I mean, even you look at the immigration issue, and I'm here to tell you a lot of money is coming to organizations like the Evangelical Immigration Table to co-op leaders to sign letters to say, hey, we need to um, have larger asylum policies. Well, if you're just an average evangelical in the pew, you go, gosh, I don't know. It seems to me like we got a really broken border and maybe we should not increase what we're doing right now with letting people in, especially since, I don't know, I feel like I read a story that says asylum doesn't always mean asylum anymore and maybe that program's being abused. And so the question is, is this what our leadership should be about? And I yeah. think that is where you have sort of that um, looking back at, okay, what were the Pharisees doing in the right. temple? Um, there, there's a certain amount of, I think, selling out of institutions going on here, and they're selling them out for political priorities, not spiritual priorities. And they're sort of taking these political priorities and putting a lot of Christian jargon on them and telling us, no, 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 these are biblical priorities. And uh, because love your neighbor, because yeah, yeah totally. I, Look, every single one of these things that are very clearly political priorities, you can say, hey, you could love your neighbor in other ways. Maybe I love my neighbor because I say um, my blue collar neighbor is seeing his wages depressed by allowing massive immigration. And so I have questions for that. Um, or my neighbor is being impacted because his her son was hit by and this is a story in my book that is a true story. Her son hit by a drunk driver wasn't killed what he was on a motorcycle in a residential neighborhood wasn't killed but the illegal alien wanted to flee so he ran and dragged this man who would have been fine blocks dragged him to his death because of illegal immigration so we can also say that that sort of rampant lawlessness also has a negative impact on my neighbor um, mm. So for each and every one of these issues, we are not talking about these things in serious ways. Instead, you just see sort of this spiritual manipulation, and I'll go so far as to say spiritual abuse, of average people in the pew saying, you have to get in line with this program in mm -hmm. order to really show that you are a follower of Jesus. And that is where I see a real Pharisee issue happening because you are creating, you know, extra biblical legalisms and burden that you're putting on people and you're demanding they sign on to something going, gosh, I, I feel like maybe these policies aren't great for me. You know, it's not good for my family to have our gas be more expensive, to have our food be more expensive. And yet that is what they're demanding of you. So, um, yeah, I just see a lot of conscience finding. And that is where um, I call foul. And I go, yeah. it's not that we don't need leaders. It's that I want leaders who aren't doing that. 
So you're looking for a university that's perfect for you. A school that has anything you could possibly need. Anything? You want a place that has the programs you want to study. And maybe a few more, just in case you change your mind. I think I'm going to sign up for the fashion design program. All right. A place with state-of-the-art facilities. I mean, look at this campus. And who doesn't love big town sports? And great recreational activities. Okay, now we're on a roll. Somewhere you can hike, slide, strike, shoot, climb, eat, and most importantly, eat. You want a place that takes you to space? Okay, maybe not, but we can teach you how to fly, or pastor a church, or run a business. And all that with a great view? Yeah, I think I know a place. I I wholeheartedly agree. And I I think where the I think the where the rubber meets the road right now in 2023 is where what is the way forward? Uh, in terms of the church, you mentioned we started out mentioning there are people that are leaving the church, and a lot of these are actually the blue collar, the salt of the earth people, people that we love. They are our neighbor, by the way. Um, ironically enough, uh, when the Oliver Anthony song went out, there was a there was a rebuke from NRO and you know National Review online. And Christianity, and Christianity today, today, don't forget. Yeah, <laughs> and then my friend Eric Tietzel writing uh, from uh, Heritage Foundation, which is actually taking a right turn to a yeah. more conservative populace, said it's not a question about you know whether his heart's in the right place, but whether we love the people that he's singing about. Do right. we actually care about these people? What is the correction? I guess as we kind of close, Megan, I cannot believe that we're already to the end of this discussion, but like what would be what would be the proposed solutions? How do we correct this problem within the church local and then within the larger evangelical world? Okay, so the first issue is we don't correct it by saying, hey, the loving thing is not to talk about it out loud. Um, and I think that you see a lot of that. I mean, everyone makes jokes about the 11th commandment, particularly among Southern Baptists, which is, you know, we don't speak negatively publicly about our leaders. That's not working. Um, now, you know, that said, you wanna be gracious, you wanna be truthful, um, you don't want to come at these issues full of hatred and anger and um, just bitterness. So I do wanna caution against that, but I can say this, that these matters have gone on far too long without people talking about them publicly. And when we talk about them publicly, I also think this, it is not helpful to continue saying, leaders are doing this. I think we have to get specific about who is doing what. I think we have to say, okay, the evangelical immigration table is pushing policies under the name of the people in the pews who do not buy into what they're pushing. And they are claiming to represent the church when they do this. So when you see people like Russell Moore doing that, um, and there was a lot of things I admired about Tim Keller. This is one of the things I did not admire, yeah. that he was very heavily involved with this and did that. Right. So I think we have to start talking specifically about what happened here. Now, one thing I would love to see, I have not seen it so far, even on the clearest issue, which was COVID, is some repentance. I would love to see some acknowledgement Me from too. leadership saying, yes, we got this wrong. When we shamed you in this way, um, when we insisted that you needed to shut down your church. You needed to take a vaccine, an experimental vaccine. You were not allowed 
to make your own health decisions on the basis of your own conscience and how you felt the Holy Spirit guiding you. Instead, you were told, this is how you love your neighbor. And if you don't do this, it's a sign that you don't care and are happy to see your neighbor die for your freedoms. I mean, that was something that was said, and it was a horrifying thing that was particularly pushed by David French, by Francis Collins. So I think that those things need to see some repentance, like specific. And look, another issue, pronoun hospitality, these ideas of how we handle transgenderism and how really devalued women and girls were by evangelical leaders like J.D. Greer, I'm going to name names, who said it's really important that we show hospitality by using transgender pronouns, and he did not consider what that did to women and girls. Mm -hmm. Now, other people did that. Rosaria Rosaria Butterfield, who is a brilliant writer, she has done tremendous work um, in her books and in her speaking for the church. She, She publicly repented, and man... That meant so much to me to see someone at her level who was willing to do that, people who recognized her and who followed her. The humility and sincerity it took for her to do that, just I respected it so much. And that's the kind of thing I think we need to see. Now, J.D. Greer, for example, sort of walked it back, but did not say, hey, I got this wrong. I I, want to repent of this. Public wrongs, public mistakes require public repentance. And we are not seeing that. So, I mean, that is my message for them is, look, I think so much goodwill could be reestablished if we didn't just pretend that those things didn't happen. Totally agree. Well said. Absolutely. There does need to be a public admission of wrong. You don't, you're not responsible for what you didn't know, right. but if you're spreading this misinformation in people's lives, you know, losing jobs, health, I mean, there's other kinds of things there, but that was the, the problem is the switches were all turned off and there were even in terms of freedom, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, a, a, a patient being able to go to their own doctor and actually seek real medical treatment and real medical counsel and advice. It seems as all the mechanisms for that were turned off during COVID and there were evangelical leaders pretending that that wasn't the case. Uh, and so everybody had to jump onto this sort of political science and not actual medical science for a period of time. I totally agree. We have to restore trust. Mm. I think that's the issue and integrity. And um, I I really think, Megan, what you're doing, the work you're doing uh, goes a long way, not only to reveal what went wrong, but I think also to put things to rights. And I think that's very, very important. What's the name of the book again? It's spicy. <laughs> Bad yeah. shepherds, how evangelical leaders are smuggling leftism into the church. So, and hey, if you're on the campus of, or in, in the vicinity of Hillsdale College next week, um, I'm going to be at Hillsdale talking about Excellent. some of this stuff next Tuesday. Well, we're going to have you back at Liberty University, and I certainly appreciate all you're doing. The one and only Megan Basham, thank you so much for joining the Give Me Liberty podcast. And folks, stick around for final thoughts. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks for watching the Give Me Liberty podcast. Let's be honest. If we could take a mulligan on 2020 during the COVID-19 pandemic, I think many of us would do it differently. Many more evangelicals recognize today just how much misinformation was spread and how much truth was also suppressed regarding two weeks to slow the spread, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, and evangelical platforms that seem to parrot all the wrong 
talking points. Yes, some would definitely take a mulligan, but I do think others would actually double down and do the same thing all over again. Lock down the church, get the jab, wear a mask, and be quiet. But something else fascinating is brewing in the greater American church, and it isn't just that there is a growing demographic and worldview divide in America among the Gen Z generation and the more than 40 million Americans that no longer attend church. It isn't just that biblical literacy and biblical worldview have expectedly fallen along this same trend, and it isn't just that we are living in a post-Christian negative world where religious affiliation and religious liberty are no longer a prized stock and trade for most Americans. As Megan Basham points out, attendance has significantly dropped among working class Americans. Some of you might scratch your heads as I did and actually had to check this information out more closely to find out what is going on. So often it is assumed that lower class and working class individuals and families would naturally have a higher expectancy to attend church regularly and give themselves strongly to a traditionally Christian identity. After all, those are the values that have defined poor and working class Americans for decades, even hundreds of years. After all, the affluent, high and mighty city dwellers are usually the first to walk away from the faith once their ship has come in. But as recent polls would have it, church attendance is down not only across the United States, but also in the Bible Belt. More than 30% of self-identified Southern Baptists seldom, if ever, attend church, according to one poll from Pew Research Forum. And it likely is an accurate poll. So is the Bible Belt the next new hotbed for unchurched and lapsed Christianity like New England before it? It would seem that COVID-19 certainly accelerated the decline of church attendance. But what is interesting or even unique to the South is that at the same time that church attendance is dropping, there is not a sudden sweeping political and social change towards progressive ideology or liberal political views that have come to define the northern states who gave up Catholicism and mainline Protestantism more than a century ago. Many former church attendees in the South still claim a theistic and even quasi-baptistic belief in God, an emphasis on personal responsibility and individualism, as well as a strong pro-life stance in matters of politics. What has changed is that many large evangelical Southern churches in more sprawling suburban areas seem to have adopted similar affluent postures and condescending attitudes towards very real frontline cultural issues that working class Americans are being faced with every day, going back to COVID-19 and how it wrecked the economy, or how CRT was being expressed from the platforms of some churches, or how the war in the American public classroom over woke indoctrination and LGBT grooming is going unaddressed in many Southern evangelical churches today. Couple all that with the high inflation in the current job market, working class Americans might actually feel beat up more than ever. Could that possibly be a reason some are leaving the church? Let's be clear. 
The church has a gospel mission that cannot be co-opted, thwarted, or perverted by lesser matters and concerns. That's always been true. The church does not exist to be a referee or a parrot to sort out all these matters or solve all political or economic problems. Yet at the same time in which our nation and our culture are divided more than ever, some evangelical churches sound more like CNN during the summer of mostly peaceful protests than they do Elijah at Mount Carmel or John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan. Not even King Herod escaped John the Baptist's rebuke, and Elijah was cleared to add ridicule to his righteous indignation. The false peddlers of wokeism deserve deserve the same criticism. Wrapping up, I appreciate the conversation with Megan Basham. There's a lot to consider over the past three years from COVID-19, the global sendemic, not pandemic, and the platform and court evangelicals who are far more concerned about earning a guest spot on Meet the Press or Anderson Cooper than taking the politically unpopular route of telling the truth as John MacArthur did. I can't wait to read her book, but for now, we'll leave it there. Until next time, God bless you.